Lord Jesus, thank you for Matt. Thank you for the gift that you've given him, God. Thank you for the gift that he is to our church, God. And I pray right now that you'd still his mind, that you would calm his heart, God, and that he would be able to deliver the word, um, the words that you want him to say, God. Give us open minds and open hearts to receive it and uh, give us hearts to repent of the sins that your word is going to expose today. In Jesus' name, amen.
So um, I just want to like point out, if you ever notice that, uh, probably like the older you are, the more you notice this, is that uh, the closest friends that you have are probably the ones that you have suffered with, the ones that you've labored with. Um, I mean, think about like uh, military buddies who've like served on a tour together. They've, they've gone overseas. They fought the same enemy. Those are some inseparable people. Uh, even in, in like, uh, I've had places in the workplace where I've become super close friends uh, to people just because we've done a hard day of work together and you know we look at each other. Uh, so, but in this case, both Jonathan and David are people who apparently they haven't met before, but they're both people who go after the enemy of God, um, and they're very zealous for his name. So Jonathan's like, I'm going with this guy. Uh, and so there's just something very, very beautiful about laboring together with someone for the gospel. I mean, uh, I've only been at Cell for like two, three months maybe, but the people in here I, are closer to me than my own family. They, they are the closest friends I've ever had. Not because we go out and have ice cream, even though I like having ice cream. It's because we labor together for the gospel. Like These people have like, been patient with me. They brought me to places, and they discipled me, brought me along as armor bearer, and they say, oh, you go do it. And so because of that laboring side by side, we become very, very close. Uh, so you'll notice. Think, think about the people who are closest to you. You're going to find that it's just so easy to love them because you've labored against the same enemy together and you've labored for the same master. And the second reason I say that this love of Jonathan for David was different than the love for Saul uh, was because Jonathan saw that the hand of God was over David. Even though he was from the house of Saul, like his father was the king, he saw that the hand of God was over David. So he's like, I'm going to pledge my allegiance to, to this guy. Whereas uh, Saul's love for David, I think it took a very uh, different course, which I'll get into in a little bit. Um, so Jonathan's love was very, uh, didn't have ulterior motives, had very uh, good dedication. Like he knew this guy was on God's side, so I'm going to stick with him. So if you look in verse 2, it says, Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. So this Saul, who apparently loves David, he's not letting David go now. Like he's, um, from what I can tell, after David defeats Goliath, that might have surprised Saul. Because Saul's like the guy who's too afraid to go against Goliath, and now this this up and coming young man who was helping him out has now gone to defeat Goliath himself. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa! I'm not going to let this guy out of my sight. I'm going to keep him uh, close to me. So Saul, Saul's love for David, I feel, is very. Uh, very self-centered, because remember, what did it say when when uh, Saul loved him greatly and made him his armor bearer? It was after it was after David would play the harp and give Saul relief from this evil spirit. So instead of Saul repenting from his uh, his stubbornness and and the evil spirit that was on him, he just wanted David to come solve his problem temporarily. Uh, and that's why he loved David, because he could get that personal relief. So you see a very very big contrast there. Now, verse 3 comes back to Jonathan. Um, it says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Now, covenant is a very important word in the Bible. The first time you hear it, I believe, is with David when God makes a covenant with David. You see a covenant with Moses. Here, this covenant, Jonathan makes it with David. Uh, and many times in the covenant, you'll notice, 
um, that a covenant has an upper party and a lower party where one serves the other. And right here, just by everything that happens in verse 3 and 4, you can kind of tell Jonathan is pledging his loyalty to David. Uh, this isn't like uh, a side-by-side covenant. It's kind of like a servant-master covenant. Which is very, uh, very interesting because Jonathan, remember who his father is, Saul, right? So, really, after Saul, Jonathan would be the one to take over the kingdom of Israel. He'd be the next in line. That's just how it works. The firstborn takes over after the king. But Jonathan's saying, wait a second. My dad was fired by God in chapter 15. Now, this guy, I don't know if he even knows about David's anointing, but he looks at David and sees the hand of God on him. So he's like, wait a second. Hope lies with the house of Judah, with David's descendants. It doesn't lie with my father. So, instead of um, trying to build my own kingdom and trying to take over the kingdom for myself, before that even before that even starts, I'm going to give my loyalty to <laughs> David. Um, which is uh, really interesting, because you, you think about this world. When we're born, who is our father? Um, Jesus looks at people and says, you're like your father the devil. When we're born, we're born children. We're born sons of disobedience, sons of wrath, sons of the kingdom of darkness. And we have this kingdom. Satan held off the rest of the world. He says, bow down to me and I'll give you all of this. I'll give you the, the pleasures of sin for a season. Uh, and so a lot of people, they're like, hey, I'm going to build my own kingdom. This is awesome. I was, I was born as part of this kingdom. Uh, and so what they do is, uh, they, they know that the, there's this king coming. They know that this house is built on sand. It's not going to stand God's wrath. But they decide to build their own kingdom and not look to this guy who's coming, whom God is appointing. Um, and so when I see Jonathan, I immediately think, Moses, he went through the same thing. Uh, look in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, we did a little commentary on the situation Moses went through. Remember, Moses was a Hebrew. But where did he grow up? He grew up under Pharaoh's house. He was trained by Pharaoh. He was well-educated by Pharaoh. And really, in the Bible, Pharaoh is the representative of Satan in the kingdom of darkness. So uh, Moses eventually had to come to a turning point. Who is he going to serve? Is he going to try to be powerful with Pharaoh? It would have been very easy for him. But he took a different path. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. It says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered abuse suffered for Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to the reward. So Moses, in his situation, he knew that if he joined with the people of God, he would have to suffer. But it would be worth it because he looked ahead to the reward. He knows God is with these people. He's not with... Pharaoh. Pharaoh's on his way out. His days are numbered. Uh, Jonathan goes to the same thing. Uh, and there's there's a promise that goes with it. Uh, Paul tells us um, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the saying is short. If we have died with him, died with Jesus, we will also live with him. If we endure or if we suffer, we will also reign with him. But if we deny him, he will also deny us. So there's a promise. Those of us who look at this world, we look at the kingdom, we say, you know what? I don't want this kingdom of darkness. It might be fun for a season. Like, you might have a good life in this world. Satan would, have, would not be happier uh, if you could just be satisfied in this world. 
not serve Jesus day of your life and just be happy. And then when you die, it all sinks away. Jesus said, what does it profit a man who shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There's, there's no point to that because they're not building on the rock. So Jonathan, he sees this very early on. He's very different from his father. Uh, and so that's an encouragement right there. Because you think, think of all the stuff your parents have gone through. You think of your descendants like, well, like, if you knew my family, if you knew where I came from, like, you know, there's, like, there's no hope for me. Like, I'm just going to fall into the same patterns that they fell into. But Jonathan, right from the get-go, he's already attacking Philistines. And as soon as he gets a chance, he pledges his loyalty to God's anointed. So be encouraged. Don't, don't let your circumstances, your, where you came from, uh, stop you. Because think about it. All of us, me, Kyle, Andrew, Catherine, everyone was born a child of the kingdom of darkness. We were born children of Satan. Uh, and so God has saved each and every one of us. Uh, do not lose heart. God, if God picks you out, there's nothing that can stop him. And so just going on to this, this covenant, it says, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he was wearing. He gave it to David and his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt. And he gave him a robe. The robe symbolizes royalty. If you dial back, flash back a little bit to chapter 15, verse 27, when Saul's fired, Saul's going crazy. It says in verse 27, Samuel turned to go away, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So Saul's He's just been fired. He's going crazy. Samuel's walking away. He grabs the robe and it tears. And Samuel uses this as a symbol. This robe signals the kingdom. And he says, God is going to take this robe of yours. He's going to take this kingdom. And he's going to give it to your neighbor. So when Jonathan gives his robe to David, he's saying, this is my right to royalty. I'm giving it to you because God has called you to be king. I'm giving up my right to be king. And it's interesting, he's fulfilling this prophecy of Samuel. It, it's not just being taken away from Saul. David didn't do anything. Saul's own son, someone from his house, gave him a royalty um, just voluntarily. Uh, and so that's another thing. John's giving up his rights um, to serve David. And then you go on. It says he gave his armor, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. And you think, remember that said Saul loved David. Jonathan loved David. There's a difference there. But Saul also gave David an armor. He tried to give David his armor and his sword and his helmet. Here, Jonathan gives it to him. What was the difference? David didn't accept Saul's gift, but he did accept Jonathan's gift. Now, there are a ton of reasons for this. Um, but the first one that comes to mind is like, you um, think about Saul's Saul's intentions of giving. When the people wanted a king uh, in chapter 8, you do a flashback again. Go back to chapter 8. Remember why these people want a king. One of the reasons it says in verse 20, um, No, but we are determined to have a king over us, instead of Yahweh, so that we also may be like the other nations, and that our king may govern us, and go out before us and fight our battles. So one of the reasons that these people wanted a king was like, Hey, we're being attacked from all sides. We want a king that's going to get our stuff in order and go fight our battles for us. 
Uh, and Saul, he was, he was doing all right at first. He got rid of Nahash, the Ammonite, to save his people. But when, uh, after he messed up with the sacrifice, and then when Goliath came, he was a coward. He said, well, I'm standing in my throne room. The whole army of Israel's like, I'm not going out to fight this guy. So this guy, he was appointed to fight Israel's battles. But now he's, he's too afraid to do it. Uh, so he's not fulfilling his responsibility as king. Now you've got all that. You've got your 40 days. Goliath is out there mocking God, mocking the people of God. And then this up-and-coming young shepherd boy comes up and he says, what is this uncircumcised Philistine got to do? Like, is he, what, how is he challenging the armies of the living God? Who does he think he is? David is just so confident in God. He's like, what, why are you guys afraid? Saul, what are you, what are you doing? And so David goes up, even though his family is against him, his family's like, who do you think you are? Uh, saying, I can come out here to see the battle. Uh, they're all attacking him. He's going to attack on every side. Uh, but David's like, you know what? God has already guaranteed our victory. I'm going after this guy. So David comes up. Saul's like, oh, okay. Uh, so you think you can take on Saul? Uh, I mean, you can take on Goliath? Um, well, uh, I'll let you know how to do that. You should take my armor. So essentially, Saul's too afraid to go after Goliath himself. But once he sees someone who's actually willing to do it, all of a sudden, Saul is the expert on how to kill Goliath. He says, oh, well, this is how you do it. You take the armor, you do this, do it my way. Um, so when he gives the armor, he's like, well, David probably won't beat him, but in case he does, you know, I gotta get some credit, you know, he's gotta, I want them to know that he got advice from me. So Saul, is, his gift to David is, is not exactly uh, selfless. He's doing it probably to cover part of his own guilt, and also to, to hedge his bet to get some credit that Goliath actually is defeated. But David's like, um, no, I haven't tested your armor. Um, why are you telling me how to do this if it's your job and you're not even doing it? So David refuses the gift. Um, and before I say this, I want you guys to know that I'm preaching to myself first. These are, everything I'm about to say is stuff that I had to learn uh, over years and years of being uh, an, unfruitful, uh, an unfruitful servant. So with that in mind, how many times does God tell us to do something? He, he puts it on our minds. We don't do it because we're like, nah, I can't do it. I'm not, I'm not qualified. That, that's for someone else. Then we see someone out there doing it. It's like, oh, you should go preach the gospel like I Nah. Then you see someone out there going to do it. And instead of, you know, encouraging them, joining them, or even just supporting them, you go up and say, oh, no, you should really do it. You should, you should do this. Uh, you should preach this way. It would be way better. You know, but, okay, God gave you that idea. Go do it. Um, it's, it's not that difficult. Like, so, if you find yourself criticizing people who are doing the work of the ministry all the time and you don't want to do it yourself, be careful. You might, you might be doing the Saul thing and just be just feeling a little guilty. Uh, because I can say, there's no such thing as a super Christian. This is the biggest myth uh, in the church today, especially where I grew up. Everyone's like, oh, well, uh, I'll just put my money in the offering plate. It's not a problem here. I'll just put my offering in the money plate and uh, all these super-Christians are going to do the work of the kingdom, and then we're all good. Um, but just giving your gifts to the people doing the ministry is not a substitute for, for doing God's will. So be very careful when you find yourself doing that. Um, and don't think you're not qualified. Like, if God puts something on your heart, he's saying, hey, Kyle, I told you to do that, not so you could tell someone else to do it, but because I qualified you. Oh, I'm not ready. Of course you're not ready. 
You're just a piece of dust that God breathed into and he put his Holy Spirit in you. You are not qualified in any way, shape, or form to serve God. But he said, you know what, Tiffany, I want you to do this. Jeremy, you're going to go preach the gospel. And I don't care if you're, you're not good at talking to people because you have my Holy Spirit. So forget about this. It, you know, maybe there is such thing as a super Christian, but you're all super Christians, okay? Um, because you all have the Holy And like, I don't say this just to be joking, because like, you're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And also remember, uh, okay, Ephesians 4.12, what does God say about leaders? Leaders in the church, what is their responsibility? Leaders, teachers, pastors. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11, says, The gifts he gave were that some of the apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. Why? So that they could do all the work themselves? No. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So, when you look at Andrew and Kyle and Brian, and you, you have your idea, like, oh, we should do that. You go up to them, you guys should... Don't be surprised if they say, hey, you go do it. Because their job is not to do the frontline work. Their job is to make sure you guys are ready to do it. Um, the majority of the work in the kingdom of God is done by the lay people, which is a terrible term. Like, you guys are not just lay people. Paul, when he, when he addresses the churches, what does he call them? Saints. Not because you guys are great, but because saint means set apart, holy, because God chose you guys. He set you apart to be his army. So, Paul calls you guys saints. And he says, you leaders, you take care of these saints because they're going to be the ones doing the real work. Uh, I mean, think about the military. What's the point of having an officer if you don't have the grunts, the enlisted? Like, if everyone were an officer, no one would get the job done. The only reason they have officers is so they can train all these grunts to do the headline work. So don't, don't think you're not like qualified because you're not, oh, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a leader, I'm not, I don't have this gift. Like, God put you there because he wants you to do the important work. And, uh, you know, the officers will take on some stuff themselves. But think about it. The main reason, uh, the main reason you see Andrew preaching out of Planned Parenthood, you see Kyle doing the music, you know why they're doing that? To give you guys an example so that you can start doing it. They, they don't want to go up there and, and show off and be, like, the spiritual guy. They're doing that because they want people to join them. They don't want to be alone. They want you guys to go up there, too. And so there's going to be a time... Well, you guys are going to have to step up to the plate and do the frontline work. Um, so do not, don't despise where you are. God is qualified. Um, so, it says, David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. And as a result, Saul sent him over the army and all the people, even the servants of Saul, through. So now, not only is David prospering with, against his enemies, but he's gaining favor from the servants of Saul, uh, which must be driving Saul crazy. Verse 6, And as they were coming home, when they were returned from killing the Philistine, Goliath, the women came out out of all the towns of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they made merry. Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry, but his saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. What more can they have with the kingdom? So, um, David is going out, and he's pretty much invincible, because he knows, okay, God has anointed me, he's promised me the kingdom, and God's going to bring it to pass, so I'm going to go out there, 
And as far as I'm concerned, until I become king, I can't be stopped. Not, not in a boastful way, but he's boasting in the promise of God. So when he goes out there, he's defeating his enemies one at a time, and they're just falling before him. And these people of Israel, remember, they wanted a king. Why? So they could fight their battles. So like, what? This guy is actually fighting our battles. So now they're singing about him. He's gaining favor with all them. And now think about Saul dealing with all this. Uh, he knows from verse uh, from chapter 15 that his neighbor, someone who's better than him, is going to take over the kingdom. So he was already suspicious of David, but now he's like, wait a second. I think David's the one who's going to take over. So he's thinking, wait a second. All of David's enemies are being trampled down under his foot. And I'm David's enemy. What does that mean? So he's, he's realizing if this continues, one day David's going to trample over him if something doesn't change. So Saul is just going crazy. Uh, you think about the expansion of the gospel of God across the nations. Uh, at one time, before Jesus came to the earth, you had Israel, and you had all the nations of the world, which were all pretty much, with a few exceptions, they were under the control of Satan. So Satan had, had been ruling all these nations, controlling all the pagan emperors, all this time. All of a sudden, Jesus comes, dies on the cross, is resurrected, now sits at the right hand of God, and you see, oh, this nation has the gospel. This nation is coming to God. And now, you have people from all these nations singing praises to their new king. And, and Satan is like, whoa, I, I used to rule these people. And now they're singing about that guy? And you know, wait a second, this this is not a good trend for me. And nothing angers Satan more than when people who used to be his servants go and cheer for the other team. So this is the same thing that's happening to Saul. He's saying, whoa, these people used to serve me, now they're all singing about David. Uh, i got to do something about this. Uh, but really, the conquest of David over his people is inevitable. And it lines just exactly with uh, the reign of Jesus uh, over the world. Psalm 110 is one of the favorite psalms of Psalm 53. What does it say? It says a psalm of David. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, this psalm is prophetic. It's about Jesus. But you even see it, David wrote this, you even see it with David right now. God has promised him that his enemies are going to be trampled, that the kingdom is going to be united under him. So, he's unstoppable. Likewise, Jesus' enemies are all going to be trampled under his foot as he sits at the right hand of God. So this is an inevitable process. But that doesn't mean Satan is going to surrender. What it means is he's going to get angry. What does it say in verse 9? So Saul eyed David from that day on. When Saul, okay, that's Saul, and when, you, when Satan sees this conquest of the kingdom, since he's not surrendering, he's going to look very closely at these people who are expanding God's kingdom. He's going to launch them very closely, and as soon as he gets a chance, he's going to attack. Um, for one of two reasons. One, he's in denial. Or two, he knows his days are numbered, so he wants to bring down as many people with him as possible. But what happens with David? How does David deal with this? The next day, an evil spirit from God rushed upon Saul. The same evil spirit that ended up bringing David into the house of Saul to save him. And he raved, or he prophesied, within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. 
Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul threw the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. So Saul's like, I've got to stop this before it starts. And so even though David is very useful to him, he's actually defeating all of his enemies for him, and he's relieving him from the spirit, Saul's like, I've got to destroy him because he's going to take over my kingdom instead of giving it over like Jonathan does. So he takes his spear, probably influenced by this evil spirit, and throws it right at David. But David, he is supernaturally delivered from the spear. And the reason I know it's supernatural is because at the end of verse 11, what does it say? That David eluded him twice. That means he threw his spear at David, David dodged it, and then David stuck around long enough for Saul to get his javelin again, walk back up, and throw it at him again. So David's like, you know what? God has placed me here. He's appointed me to serve this evil king for the time being, and I'm going to stay right where I am, even though he's throwing a javelin at me. He's like, okay, just as I am unstoppable against these enemies, God's guaranteed my victory. Uh, God has guaranteed I'll be king, so there's no way Saul can lay a hand on me uh, until that happens. So he stays right where he is, and Saul just can't manage to get him. Now this is very important. Uh, when you start serving God, prepare for the javelins to be thrown at you. If you're, if you're not doing anything, if you're just sitting in church on, on Friday or Sunday, and you go home and you, you watch your Netflix for a week, and then you come back on Friday, don't worry about the javelins. They're not coming for you because you're not doing anything. But once you start actually obeying God and laying a hold of his promises, defeating enemies uh, of God, these javelins are going to come at you. But don't be afraid of them. Because until God says your time is up, Satan cannot lay a hand on you. He has no power at all. Uh, and the thing, I just thought about the weapon that Saul has, and the weapons that Satan has versus the weapon that we have. Saul has a javelin. And uh, if we compare this with Satan, and if, if you go to Ephesians, uh, again, when it talks about the armor of God, it tells us also what kind of attacks we have to guard against. It says we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against uh, the spiritual forces of this world. It tells us to put on the full armor of God. In uh, chapter 6 of Ephesians, verse 13, it says, take, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand, therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Um, so think about the breastplate. What, what does it protect? Does it protect your back or your front? It protects your front. You know why? Because God doesn't want you to run from those attacks. He gave you this breastplate in front so that you could face it head on. Uh, and it says in Ephesians that you can avoid the fiery darts of Satan. He's going to throw these fiery darts at you. But if you stand firm with your breastplate of righteousness, which is not your righteousness, by the way, it's the righteousness of Christ that you put in you, if you hold fast to that, then you're going to be invincible because he can't lay a hand on you. And if you look... Back in chapter 18, verse 12, what does it say? After David eludes him, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So, do not be afraid of Satan's attacks. He's afraid of you. Why do you think he's throwing a jab? Why do you think he's throwing fiery darts? Because he's afraid to get up close to you. These, these things he throws at a distance because he doesn't want to face you head on. But what weapon does God give us? He 
says, pick up the sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword is up close and personal. He's given us the, uh, the weapon that we can just go up and defeat, uh, defeat our enemies. Uh, so, honestly, Satan does not want to face you head on if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, because he knows he's going to lose. That's why what Satan does is he tries to scare you. He'll throw his javelin, and he wants you to run away and give up what you're doing. He'll, he'll get all your family speaking uh, words against you. He'll get, uh, he'll make you uh, lose your job. He'll uh, throw all kinds of these fiery darts at you. And what he wants is you to get discouraged so you don't fight him. But he knows that if you take up the breastplate of righteousness and the sword of the spirit, he doesn't stand a chance. So don't be afraid because the devil fears you. He knows who your father is. And he trembles against his father. Satan is a coward. He does, he does not want to face God head on. So what he does is he tries to throw these fiery darts at God's kids. He tries to discourage them because uh, they're not fully confident in, in the righteousness that they have. But once they know who they are, they can't be stopped. So, verse 13. Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. David marched out and came in, leading the army. David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. So Saul is trying to attack him himself. And now he's kind of given up on that. He fears David now, so he's like, whoa, i got to get this guy out of my presence. Uh, I'm going to try some new tactics. And um, from what I can understand from this, my, my thought is that Saul is sending him over these battles, hoping that maybe David is going to have some bad luck. Because with all these battles, David's so great, he's going out in front. Maybe he's going to be a casualty of war. Um, so he's trying this different tactic to try to get David killed another way. But what happens? He prospers in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. Now, what this made me think of, uh, going back to the guaranteed victory thing, is uh, I'm not a history buff, but if you know anything about World War II, what really, really sealed the deal on ending World War II? 1944, D-Day. People come in, Germany was not ready. Uh, people made Normandy, and they succeed. And from that point on, many people think victory was pretty much guaranteed, and Hitler was not didn't have a very good strategy going forward. But either because Hitler was in denial, or because in his evilness, he just wanted to bring as many people down with him as possible. More people died in between D-Day and D-Day than all the years of the war beforehand. Hitler doubled down on all the attacks because he wanted to bring people down with him. So Saul and Satan, even though D-Day has happened, D-Day happened when David was anointed and Saul was fired. Goliath was killed. Saul doesn't surrender. He doubles down and he goes after David. Likewise, D-Day happened on the cross. When Jesus died and resurrected, he bought the victory. His victory over death and over the kingdom of Satan was inevitable. V-Day, Victory Day, is going to come when Jesus finally establishes his kingdom, which he's already doing right now. He's still invading this world, spreading the gospel in every nation. That day is coming, and there's nothing that can stop it. But the devil, uh, Satan, because he is so given over to his evil, uh, instead of surrendering, he's going to go all out. He's going to pull out all the stops and try to bring as many people with him as possible. So he's uh, prepared 
uh, the further along we get in history, yet the more and more that we take over Satan's kingdom, the more angry, the more paranoid Satan is going to get, and he's going to bring out his attack full force. That's why you see in the Old Testament, you don't really hear a lot about demons. You hear about them here and there, warnings against mediums and spirits. Once you get to the New Testament, read the Gospel of Mark. Every chapter, there's a demon that's like, whoa, Son of God. Uh, they recognize him, and they realize that something is happening because the kingdom of Satan is under attack. So be prepared for the spiritual warfare that's going to happen because Satan's going to fall out all the stops. But don't forget, your victory is guaranteed. He can't touch you until God says that time is up. So, when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because it was he who marched out the kingdom and leading them. And that's a beautiful thing to see Israel and Judah come to love David because these were the people who wanted who rejected Yahweh. They wanted their own king. Um, they wanted Saul. They wanted the ones who would take care of their problems. But now they're seeing, wait a second, Saul is a liar. He's a fake. He won't even fight our battles. This guy, this guy is not going to help us. So what they do is, slowly but surely, you're going to read throughout the rest of this book that they pledge their loyalty to David because he is God's anointed. So what we see is throughout history, all these people belonged to the kingdom of Satan. They served them for thousands of years. But when the gospel comes in, they're like, wait a second. Satan has been lying to us all these years. If we continue to follow him, we're going to lose our souls. We're not going to stand when the storm of the Lord's wrath comes. So what they do is they hear the gospel and they pledge their loyalty to God. God makes a covenant with them and he says, I will put my spirit in you and I will save you from your sins. And one day, whether you like it or not, whether you believe him right now or not, every knee will bow before Jesus and every tongue will confess him as Lord. Because he is Lord. He is the king and one day he will rule over the whole earth. So we can either try to build our kingdom on this sand. We can... Uh, we can try to have our fun for the season. We can work for Pharaoh. We can work for Saul. But it's all built on sand. So I plead with anyone who looks at the, the suffering and looks at the cross and says, no, thank you, please reconsider. Don't despise the cross. It's so worth it. It's, it says that if we die with Christ, we die to ourselves, we will live with him. And if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. The suffering with God's people, as Moses suffered with God's people, is not a depressive suffering where it brings you down and down. That's what happens when, when Satan oppresses you. But when you suffer with the people of God, God refines you. I was, I was telling my, my friend Joey just a second ago, when you think about how gold is created. Gold is created, it's mined, has all this junk on it, and it goes... To make it pure gold, it has to go through this crucible. All this fire has to purge it of all the impurities. And it comes out as pure gold. So Paul, in his letters, he says, guys, don't, don't build your houses out of straw and rubble. Build it with gold and silver, precious metals. Because if you build your house on, on what lasts, you will withstand the day of judgment. Not because you're so great, but because you found the rock. You found Jesus Christ. You found him who conquered death on the cross, and you put your faith on him, you built your house on him, 
Therefore, God made your house a house of gold, and it's going to stand the fire of God's wrath. So please, don't despise the cross. Yes, there is suffering, but it's, it's a good kind of suffering, because it's going to bring you so much closer to Jesus. He's going to teach you about who He is. Um, and remember, um, another thing about laboring for the gospel, going through the suffering, um, and drawing those close bonds of one another. Um, last verse I want to share with you guys is in Mark chapter 3. Um, Jesus' family is coming up to him as he's teaching bunch of people. Uh, verse 32 of chapter 3 says, A crowd was sitting around him, around Jesus, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. He replied, Who are my mother and my brothers and sisters? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother sister and mother. So not only as you do the will of God when you draw close to the people in your church and the people laboring with you, well, what does Jesus say? He says, my brother. Jesus, for those who believe in him, Jesus has become your brother. He's become the firstborn of many brothers who are going to be resurrected. So when you do the will of God, you suffer for him, you don't despise the cross, you're going to form that inseparable bond with Jesus himself. So it's great. I love my family here at Cell. I draw so close to them when I labor with them. But really, the one that I draw the most closely to is Jesus himself. And there is no greater treasure than that. So do not be discouraged. Don't despise the suffering. Don't run from where God has placed you. If God has told you to play the harp for the evil king, do it. Do it for now. Be faithful to him and don't fear when they come after you, because God is going to fulfill His promise. He's going to use some in suffering. He's going to use some of you in the victory. But wherever you are, God is using you to expand His kingdom. So like I said, this is all stuff that took me years to learn. God has been very, very patient with me, and I pray that you don't despise His patience. His mercy is meant to lead us through repentance. He doesn't want to his default is not to condemn us. His default is to bless us and make us his soldiers. He wants to take us and use us. He doesn't need us. But he says, you. I want to use you. So Lord, I thank you for uh, these words. I thank you that your word is so precious and that you have shown us uh, through these scriptures people. Both examples of people who have rejected you and examples of people who have humbled themselves looked at uh, the coming king have surrendered themselves to you. God, give us humble hearts. Give us hearts that don't grow weary. Give us minds that are not tired of doing good and increase our brotherly love. Draw us close together. When people fall by the wayside, I pray that you would send your people to them, but most of all that you would send your Holy Spirit. Let people not forget that they have a breastplate of righteousness that is not their own. A breastplate of righteousness that God put on them. The people put on the whole armor of God not fear Satan. Because Satan has no power over them. He is only here to be an example of God's power. He is only here because God has allowed him to live this time. 
but one day, Victory Day will be here. And it is a privilege to serve and expand in your kingdom. May your will be done on earth. May your kingdom come here as it is in heaven. Lord, teach us to bless your name. Teach this nation to bless your name and draw the church together so that we will no longer be afraid. We pray this in the precious name of your Son, who conquered death, who guaranteed your victory, that we get to take part in. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to this resource from Cell 53, Proclaiming the Kingdom of God for the Sake of the City. For more resources, visit cell53.com.